Man, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thank you for all of those of you who are joining us online today. I'm so glad you were with us. Most years have 365, maybe 366 days. Is it just me? It feels like we're on day 1,000 of 2020. And most weeks are supposed to have seven days. Is it just me that this past week feels like a month? And I've reminded us over the last few weeks multiple times that no matter what happens with COVID or with the political election, God is not on the line. God has made it through a lot of things that have happened in the world before. And I've reminded us the church is not on the line. The church is God's idea. This is God's plan. God protects God's church. God, the church is here to stay. For 2,000 years, the church has made it through a lot of hard times. But I've also reminded us multiple times that every single day, Christian witness is on the line how we bear witness to Christ, how we serve as ambassadors of Christ. This is on the line each and every day and in, in the people we're around and the, the influence we have on the world. And there are times where Christian witness has to be sustained by God and protected by God and has to be kept intact. And there are times when Christian witness has to be repaired. And I think there's a little bit of both of those that are going to have to happen in the life, in the lives of the people of God, especially in the United States in the days moving forward. I'm thankful for how God has protected a lot of Christian witness, and I'm also asking God to repair Christian witness that has been broken over the last few weeks or last few months. And we can do this. The church can do this. With God's help, the church can do this. All right, so here's the challenge we face. Now, I haven't seen anything the last couple of days, but the, the stats I, I, I've seen, so don't quote me on this. I probably need to do better research, but around 75% of white evangelicals in the United States voted for President Trump, which means around 25% of white evangelicals in the United States voted either for a Democrat or, or possibly maybe a few for an independent. And I also saw that around 90%, maybe just under 90% of African Americans in the United States voted for Biden. So in any church, though you may think everybody voted just like you and thinks just like you, every church has people sitting in pews right now where we are, sitting on couches and chairs who have voted differently. And God has heard all kind of prayers over the last few days, weeks, and months. God has heard prayers of people that God's will would be done. And God has heard the prayers of people that their side would win and that Trump would win or that Biden would win or that one side would lose. We've heard all these. And I've talked to multiple people who've either voted one way because they really, really, really want Trump to win or because they just didn't want Biden to win or they really wanted Biden to win or they just didn't want Trump to win. And I've talked to other people who just want everything to be over with. They're tired of it. I care about the United States of America being the United States of America. And there's so much division and hatred, and, and, and we know this. And, and I think we all want something better for ourselves, for our kids, our grandkids, for, the next, for generations to come. But what I care more about today is, is for a united church. I care about the United States of America and the United States being united. But I care even more about there being a united church. And, and right now, I know there's so many emotions and people who are upset and some who are so full of joy. And I want to believe the church can do this, that we can model, we can move forward. There's so much work in the world to be done. I want to believe we can do this. 
Uh, so today what I want to do is open up 1 Peter chapter 3 to us in a way hopefully that can help recenter and reorient us. I, I believe God led me to preach this months ago when I was thinking about how this nine-week series of 1 Peter was going to unfold for this church. This was the passage I came to that I wanted to preach the Sunday after the election. This is what I came to. And part of what I want to do today is to remind us that Jesus is on a throne and, and I know this is something that's been challenged over the last couple of weeks. And maybe you've been in conversations about this or you've seen this on social media where some people have pushed back on the phrase or phrases like God is in control or God is on the throne. And, and to their defense, there are some pastors and clergy and church leaders and Christians who have, who have used that phrase over the last few weeks as a way to say God's on the throne. So, hey, it doesn't really matter what happens on this, on this earth. And, and that's not how I want to talk about Jesus being on a throne. Because I believe the way the ears of God work is that the ears of God are hearing the praises that are happening in heaven, but the ears of God are also paying attention to the cries of people on this earth. That God is listening and God's eyes are open to everything that is happening around the throne of heaven, but God is fully present in what is happening right here in this earth, on this earth. So let me remind us, let me begin by reminding us, in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 it says this, for Christ also suffered once for all, once and for all, for all sins, Christ suffered. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He is put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, this, this, this phrase about suffering once for all is a phrase that means completeness. This is Peter's way of saying, and the author of Hebrews in our New Testament, he, the author of Hebrews talks about this too, that Jesus suffered once for all. It means that Jesus is still not suffering for our sins, that the work of Jesus was complete on the cross, that Jesus has accomplished something, that God has accomplished something for Jesus, and we are still feeling the impact of this. This is an anchor of our faith. Right? That Jesus suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous and all of us were the unrighteous, and Jesus stepped in so that Jesus could bring us to God. So let me, uh, let me talk about something I think most of us can agree on, and that is... Ice cream and pizza are really good, right? I think in all the things we can disagree on over the past few weeks and months, we can agree on ice cream and pizza. Now, I'm not going to talk about this in a way where I'm encouraging you to go and like splurge and binge on ice cream and pizza. But let's talk about it just for a moment. Because ice cream, when you go to an ice cream shop, and every once in a while, my family will go to an ice cream shop, either a local, local place or a Baskin-Robbins. And you have like a few different stages you go through when you go get ice cream. Stage one is you have to decide, what are you going to put your ice cream in, a cup or a cone? And you can do the paper cup if you want to, and I'm not going to judge you, or you can do the little cardboard thing, or you can do the waffle cone, which I think is probably what Jesus would do, use if Jesus was eating ice cream today. And then after that, you get to choose your flavor, and there are a lot of different flavors, and even now during COVID, they let you, they get, they, you get samples. How many of you have ever had so many samples that by the time you finish all your samples, you really don't need ice cream? You're almost already full, right? You can try them all. You can even mix them up a little bit. And then you choose your flavor. And, and that's not the last thing you do. Then you have to choose, is it going to be one scoop, two scoops, or three scoops? And I think we can agree that the Bible makes it pretty clear that it's not good for anyone to be alone in life. We were built for community. <laughs> So two to three is probably the way to go. 
And then some of you right there, you call a quiz. Like, that's it. You're done. You got your cone or your cup. You got your ice cream. You have your scoops. But then you come to that whole little area with all the toppings. There are Oreos. There's Heath Bar. Gummy bears, if that's how you roll. Bacon bits, jalapenos. I'm just joking. Probably not those. But, the, you know, you have all your toppings. And that's just how it goes. And then you go and you enjoy your ice cream. A pizza is very similar in the same kind of way. Whether you're ordering from uh, Papa John's or a Domino's or maybe a local place, you begin with the crust. There's like the crustometer. You're going to do it thick, Chicago style, or are you going to do it like the Bible says to do it, which is thin with a, a nice little wafer crunch on it. And then you choose your sauce and you choose your cheeses and then you get to your toppings. Pepperoni, Italian sausage, Canadian bacon, maybe a couple of veggies. I believe there's going to be pizza in heaven. But I do not believe there's going to be pineapples on pizza in heaven. Can we just, even those of you online, can we just agree like pineapples don't belong on pizza? Maybe that's how, maybe that's how you roll. Now when it comes to ice cream and when it comes to pizza, it's not in the reverse order. You don't start with the toppings and then work to the cheese and sauce, and then to the kind of crust. And with ice cream, you don't start with the toppings. Most of those toppings you can buy at the store and eat them by themselves. You don't start with the toppings, and then go to how many scoops you want, and then the flavor, and then the, and then the, wave, uh, the, the waffle cone or the cup. <clears throat> and I'm afraid so many times in life, we make Jesus a topping. It's like we go through life, and we form our plan we submit or give our lives to a certain political party or ideology or certain convictions and a way of life and our dreams that bring us security and what we want for our future and what our plans are for retirement and how we want our family to go. And then we want just enough of Jesus on top to make us feel righteous. And Jesus has no desire to be just a topping in our lives, but to be the substance that everything else is built on. And though I don't think Peter's going to use a pizza or an ice cream analogy, and he doesn't do that in 1 Peter, and he probably wouldn't have preached that kind of way. But I think Peter's trying to remind these people who are in these churches, these small rural churches who are struggling, maybe not with physical persecution, but with all kind of social persecution, verbal persecution, where their commitment to Jesus has a social consequence and economic consequences. And he's reminding, look, Jesus is the substance. Keep pressing into Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, what it talks about is, here's what Jesus did. Once and for all, Jesus suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, you're going to love this, kid, to bring you to God. And this is a word that means like it is someone who is taking another person and bringing them into someone else's presence. So this isn't like Jesus opened a door for you and then hung up a sign and Jesus walked through the door and now hopefully you'll see the door and you'll see the sign you'll come through. This is saying that what Jesus has done is Jesus is working to carry people, to grab people, and to bring them into the presence of God. I've prayed this for some of you in the room right now, for some of you in the room and some of you in the room with some of your relatives and friends is that Jesus would do just this right here, would help bring people to God. Now, I want to work us through a little bit of 1 Peter 3. And if you're taking notes or in your mind, I want you just to think of two words this morning, a word goodness and the word conscience. Because what Peter does 
a lot in all of 1 Peter is talking about goodness. You see this over and over again, a life that is committed to good deeds, a life that is committed to the goodness of God. And what you're going to see in these few verses we read this morning is that Peter is also concerned about people's, like your conscience, right? how you think, how you make decisions. So let me begin in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. And I want to build on this again next Sunday. Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, as well as chapter 4, 7 through 11, where Peter hits behavior and conduct really hard. But listen to this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic. Tell me if this is not a great word for us today, all right? Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And there are times we read stuff like that, or we read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and we may think, that works really good for VBS and for Anna and the children's ministry, but that does not work in the adult world. And the church is supposed to be the kind of witness that says, actually, it's our new ethic. Like this, is, this is what we are called to be a part of. Now, let's go from verse 13 through 22, and I'm going to take this kind of slowly this morning. In, in verse 13 and 14, it says this, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. This first verse right here, that first question that comes across in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That word eager is actually the word for zealous or for zealots. It's that you're not just going to do good because this is your obligation. It's that we're going to live a life of doing good because this is our passion. This is what Jesus saved us for. It's to be zealous, just like the zealots, to be zealous and passionate about doing good. It's this commitment to it. And then he's going to talk just a little bit about suffering because Peter talks about suffering. He references this word suffering over a dozen times in the letter. Peter talks about suffering more than any other New Testament book. All, other, all the other 26 books, Peter talks about suffering more than any of them. And I've shared the last few weeks, I don't think Peter's talking about suffering so much in the physical persecution since though that would have happened some in the early church and probably in the churches that he spoke to. This past week, I had a chance to sit down uh, at breakfast with a friend, and he's a, a friend, a well-known nonprofit leader throughout Memphis, and he's a friend who has some connections to some mission efforts in Nigeria. And I don't know if you've paid attention at all to some of the persecution that's broken out in Nigeria over the last few weeks, but he showed me a video that was sent to him of a Christian who had been tied up to pieces of wood and was hanging over a fire as they hit him in the head and in the body with the butt of their guns. Most of us really have no clue what physical persecution is like, and hopefully we never will. But Peter's also writing to a lot of people who are dealing with slander and verbal persecution, and most of us probably know what that's like a little bit. Like the whole thing, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me. Like I think most of us believe it's garbage. Like words cut deep, words hurt, words pierce. 
So Peter's speaking this word like, hey, no matter what comes to you, I'm asking you to be committed to a life of goodness. And if you do this, if you commit your, right, your, your life to righteousness and to good deeds, to good work, to the goodness of God, Peter says you will be blessed. Which is something Peter got straight from Jesus, right? The first teaching we have from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes, where Jesus starts going through eight or nine different things of blessed are. And the last Beatitude is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed, not just those who are persecuted, but you're persecuted because of the good life you were living. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter shares this in verse 15. But in your hearts, revere or set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 1 Peter 3.15 was a a verse that God lodged inside of my spirit at the age of 17 or 18. It was a time in my life I started taking Jesus really seriously. And I wanted to help evangelize and share the good news of Jesus in the school where I was. And one thing I began to learn then that I also, I, I wrestle with now is a lot of times when I communicate the gospel, I'm communicating it in a context like right now, where I prepare something And I sit with God and I write a sermon or a communication piece and then I present it. And even though it may come across in a conversational style, right now you're listening to me and you may decide to shoot me emails tomorrow and to question some of the things I say and that that happens. But the way it goes is I present something and and I give it. But what I learned at the age of 17 and 18 is a lot of times when evangelism is happening, it's not just that you write something and you present it and you hope people get it. You have to be ready when people start asking questions about your faith or your life or what they read in the Bible or how they're living life, and you need to be ready. And it's not just that you are ready to give an answer for anything for Peter. It's you are ready to give an answer for the hope you have. Not just your convictions, not just your worldview. It's that you are ready to bear witness to the hope you have. Hope is what sets Christians apart from everyone else. Hope in a life with God that will never end. You'll always be prepared. And it's not just that you're prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. It's that you do it with gentleness and with reverence. Right? With passion that people know that like you're genuine and you care. Now Peter's talking to a lot of people. If you remember in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Peter's talking about a bunch of slaves who are part of these churches and, and wives who have unbelieving husbands who are part of these churches. So they're people who in the world don't have much worth and they don't have much passion. Yet Peter's reminding them, you're an ambassador. Like you have something to say, you be ready. And when suffering comes, you need to have a no matter what kind of faith. Like it's one thing when you suffer, To suffer as someone who is rooted. And it's another thing when you suffer from any kind, yet you have no roots. 
In uh, September or October of 2018, my family, we uh, traveled down to the beach. And while we were there in this one condo down at the beach, I was standing in a spot when I got the call from my mom that she, she had cancer. So there in that condo, we processed as a family what this journey was going to be like, all the what-ifs, as we looked outside the window and we saw a tropical storm that was approaching, knowing that there was also like a storm that our family was going to be walking through too. Two months ago, in September, my family went back to the beach, same condo, I'm standing in the same place when my mom called again to tell me her cancer was back, and this time multiple spots. As we looked out the window and we saw Hurricane Sally, a Category 2, approaching. Which means my family may never go back to the beach again. Or if we do, we will not take phone calls from my mom. Knowing there was a hurricane approaching and there was also a storm that was coming in my family's life too. This cancer has been a little more, has been a little more active than the first one. And finally, over the last week, we got a little clarity of what my mom's dealing with. And they have a plan in place, a surgery that's coming up in a few weeks. But here's what I love about my mom. My mom and I just wrote a book that was released in September. And a lot of the book is about suffering and pain. And the first chapter of the book is talking about how my mom's cancer-free. And for any of us who choose to say stuff publicly, there will come times in life when you're going to have to look back and say, do I still believe what I said? Like, I said that from one place and now I'm going through this. Do I still believe it? And my mom has had to go back and look at many of the things she wrote in that book and many of the things she has lived out in her counseling practice and things she has said to people. And now she's having to live through it in her own life to have a no matter what kind of faith. Or maybe a better way or a different way to say it is an even if kind of faith. Even if that happens. I'm committed to a life of righteousness. Even if what blows me away about my mom is every single time she calls me to tell me about a doctor's appointment she had. She tells me a little bit about the appointment and a lot about the conversations she has had with doctors and nurses and assistants. She goes in as their client and then most of them end up being my mom's client. Either because their marriages are going through things or their own grief journey. My mom's handing out books to everybody that she sees in clinics. And then people are responding. Like to see her live out in her fear and anxiety. This, even if, even if this, my life is given to being a witness to God's hope. Now, here's how the end of 1 Peter 3 ends. And let me just go 19 through 21. It's complicated. And here's how it goes. After being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And I don't know how it comes across in your version, but Jesus went to Hades. Like Jesus stepped into darkness to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you read that and you're like, what in the world? Like, this is one of the only places in the New Testament that, that, that refers to something like this happening after Jesus died. Like, what 
went on? Is, is Peter being, uh, is, is, he, uh, is he just throwing around some imagery? Did, did this really happen? Did Jesus tell him it really happened? It ends up in the Apostles' Creed. So it has been a part of the church's theology for a long time. And if you want to talk about some of the theories behind this, I'm happy to talk about them some this week. Let me try to give just a little context of why I think Peter put it in there. And the context begins with you, with you seeing how 19 through 21 begins and ends. It begins with verse 18, and it ends with verse 22. It begins with the statement, For Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And it ends in verse 22 with this, Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Jesus has accomplished something. The work is complete. Now, in the middle, a few things you do see. The proclamation of Jesus is this. The proclamation of Jesus is about triumph and victory. So whatever it is Jesus is proclaiming to whoever it may be, it's victory and triumph. It also reveals to you Jesus is willing to go to uncertain and unexpected places to meet with audiences that seems impossible. Like there's no place that Jesus and his proclamation of triumph and victory is not willing to go. And I think there's also a message here that Peter's saying, hey, many of you feel like you're going through storms right now. Like you feel like you're in a flood. God saved Noah through an ark. God is saving you through Jesus. I would much rather be with Jesus in a storm than be in an ark in a storm. And Peter's also saying, if back then God was willing to save eight, you may think the number is small now. But if God's willing to save Noah and them... God's willing to save you too. And the way this works is that Jesus saves us through water. And through the waters of baptism is both the removal of sin and through the waters of baptism is also a good, clean, clear conscience. It's an appeal to God for that. Baptism is an appeal to God for a clear conscience. And some of us need it because some of us have done some stuff. We've done some stuff that still, like, it, it hovers over us. And not only that, some of you, it's not that you've done a lot of things in your life. It's you've had things done to you. And some of you today, listening to me, need an invitation into baptism, both for the removal of your sin and for the appeal of a good conscience. And Peter's writing to a lot of Christians, reminding them that in your baptism, it was an appeal to God for a good conscience. And for some of us, we need that reminder today. What Jesus accomplished in and through your baptism, Jesus is still working to bring you to fullness and wholeness. So where your conscience has been messed up over the last few weeks or months and you've given it to other places, your conscience is a spiritual and moral awareness to what God is up to in the world. Now Peter writes all of this to encourage the church as we continue to journey in life. Like we have a message, like God has a purpose for us. Maybe you've heard of the man William Borden. William Borden passed away just over a century ago in 1913. He was a part of the Borden 
dairy estate. So many of you have participated in this before, where you go into grocery stores, almost any grocery store carries boarding items of milk and chocolate milk, strawberry milk, things like that. When William was seven years old, his mother had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, totally transformed her life. There was an awakening in her life. So he grew up with a father who ran the Borden estate, who was one of the wealthiest men in Chicago, and he grew up under a mother who at the age of seven trans- transformed, like God transformed all of her passion. So he grew up under her spiritual authority. In high school, William, he became serious about Jesus. When he graduated high school, his parents sent him on a 90-day trip around the world. Now, this is the early 1900s, so it's not like he could get on private jets, but they treated him to like first-class care, like all around the world. And as he went around the world, he found himself meeting with missionary after missionary after missionary. And it began to open him up and open his heart that he... He, just, he had a passion for people, for unreached groups, people throughout the world who had never been reached for Christ. So he came back and he attended Yale University, where he had a degree today in what would be considered a business degree. And it was there at Yale that he just could not let go of this passion inside of him to help proclaim the gospel so that unreached people groups throughout the world can know about Jesus. It was also while at Yale that his father suddenly passed away, and almost instantly William became a multimillionaire. And all of his friends in college said that you, ne- you would have never known it. Like we didn't know, we knew he was worth something, but we didn't know how much he was worth because he didn't spend money on anything. All you knew was everywhere he went, he wanted people to know about Jesus. Now people thought that when he graduated from Yale that William would go back to Chicago to run the family business. But instead, William made an announcement that he was going to go overseas to China to be a missionary. People thought he was crazy. There's a newspaper clip, a newspaper article of this young millionaire renounces the world to be a missionary. It made made headlines all around the world. People thought he was crazy. So he, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And it was while he was there that he decided that he was going to go to China. And in order to prepare for him to go to China and try to reach unreached people groups, he was going to go to Egypt to study Islam because the place he wanted to go in China at that time had a number of Muslims. So upon graduation, he went to Egypt where he was learning Islam so he could go and reach people for Christ that he, contra- he contracted, spinal meningitis. And at the age of 25, William died. And there are many articles that were written and people who said that it was a waste of a life. And there are even Christians like saying things like, man, if he would have run that family business, all the millions of dollars he would have made, how many other churches could he have planted and missionaries could he have sent? But William had a calling on his life that he decided to follow. Now, William also had a Bible. And in the back of the Bible, he would occasionally take notes or write things he thought God had spoke to him. When he decided he was going to go to China to be a missionary, he wrote in the back of his Bible, he wrote the word, no regrets. And then when he was in Egypt, studying, he wrote again two words, no regrets. And days before he died, he wrote in the back of his Bible the two words, 
No regrets. You could visit his tombstone today in Egypt. And on his tombstone, it says this right here. If you go to that last slide. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. May the same be what we try to live into this week. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you want to open your hands where you are just to receive from the Lord. Today, God, we want to receive from you. Your words, your truth, your passion, the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Less of us, more of you. Recenter us, reorient us. We pray, God, for our country, our leaders, our world. We ask for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And today for our Christian witness, protect it, repair it, sustain it, and unleash it for your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.